Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome to a new episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me here to talk about a film that has absolutely nothing at all to do with music, despite its title, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. That's my rhythm section right there. Hey, that's maybe a better rhythm section, but we, <laughs> we should save that for later. This week, we are going to dig into the recently released on Video On Demand Blake Lively assassin thriller, The Rhythm Section, co-starring Jude Law and featuring Sterling K. Brown for like three minutes of screen time. And yes, I'm very salty about it, and I will spend most of this episode trying to forgive the film for wasting such an incredible actor. But we are actually very grateful and want to thank Paramount Home Entertainment for providing us copies of the film to watch, and also for giving us four copies of this movie to give away to our listeners in the Facebook group. We asked members of that Facebook discussion group to tell us their favorite Blake Lively and Sterling K. Brown performances, and then we picked winners at random, and there were some really great responses to read, Patrick. I think that I couldn't disagree with any of them. They were all just fantastic because Sterling K. Brown and Blake Lively are just phenomenal in general, yep. and you know, I had high hopes for the rhythm section. They can do <laughs> no wrong when it comes to acting. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the films that they're in are <laughs> up to par with the acting performances. True. That's moving true. moving on, though. <laughs> we are ready to start unpacking what this film has to offer. And, you know, that's what we try to do around here is look at the themes and pull out what we can to have a good experience from a movie, regardless of whether we love it or not. So here's the obligatory spoiler warning. If you haven't seen the film... Remember, again, it is available right now on VOD, and it will be out on Blu-ray on May the 5th, 2020. There's your spoiler warning. Patrick, what is your one-word takeaway? <laughs> I got to this movie late this week, later than I normally do. I try to do any movies that we're not covering in the theater on a Friday night so that I can do note prep on Saturday morning, and I'm not having to necessarily worry about Dividing my time with my family. Well, this one I got too late. We had some plans with the friend, some friends of ours last night. We did practice social distancing, and we weren't there very long, so we were semi-responsible. But we got home late, and I got through about a third of it before I started getting sleepy and said, I'm going to finish this up today. Well, despite getting a good night's rest, <laughs> the word that I came away with was the word that I had leaving uh, as I went to bed last night, and that was struggle. I struggled with this movie, Aaron. This is a movie that I wasn't high on seeing to begin with. I, as much as anybody, can be very much a judge, a subjective judge of character when it comes to movies. There are certain movies that people like, certain people don't. I heard this is defined as a kind of a gritty James Bond, and it kind of met those expectations, but... It was very slow at times. There were things that just didn't progress for me. We get right into the movie and we're kind of oblivious to what's going on. We're putting pieces together and the storytelling is sort of there. But I felt like it was just that, like a series of pieces. I felt like I was actually kind of working through a video game, going on all these different missions with this intent, this motive that our main character is being driven by and not necessarily being attached to that. I wasn't emotionally invested in what she had lost. And I don't know if this was a credit to the storytelling or credit to the costume design, but you have this beautiful woman in Blake Lively who has been transformed into a beat up woman, a woman who has been run down and who is now, living her life day to day as a prostitute. And I think personally it was hard for me to get my head around that because I've been so used to an elegant Blake Lively, a survival Blake Lively. And I, I was thinking about this as I was kind of coming up with my word and thinking 
man, am I being superficial and saying that if she's not pretty, I'm not going to like her? No, I think her performance is fantastic. The story, though, and her character in particular was just really hard for me to connect to because it was so far removed from something that I wasn't used to. If you compare that to James Bond or Mission Impossible or movies that are kind of in this espionage type thing, it feels like an imbalanced combination of real and like fun. So James Bond, Mission Impossible, you suspend your disbelief. When you have a movie like this, you kind of want to believe that it's real, but then there are parts of it that really feel completely unreal. And so it was really difficult for me to enjoy trying to get my head around, should I feel one way or should I feel another? I think both of them worked effectively in their own right, but not together in this entire movie. And it felt like it just kind of dragged on for me. So yeah, I, I struggled with it. I think there's definitely some themes of struggle, especially with our main character. But for me personally, after I I finished the movie, I was like, man, that was hard to get through. Yep, that is a very, very accurate experience. I think that many viewers had. Basically everybody except our dear listener, Dave Courtney, who know historically loves every movie it feels like we mess with him about that but this is yet another one where he's kind of against the crowd he finds a lot to love in this one and i don't disagree with him about some of the themes that this movie presents being interesting to explore but like you i was definitely on the struggle bus and my one word takeaway was dull (laughs) just dull Uh, The film's director, Reed Murano, I think should be praised still for bringing a woman's eye to this female assassin subgenre. We've had quite a few films of this type, and this feels very different than all the rest of them. And so that's something to be lauded, uh, I guess. I, I understand what she was going for here. It's definitely clear that the gaze is very different than that of a typical male director for this type of film. Blake Lively's character of Stephanie rarely displays her incredible real-life sex appeal. And instead, like you said, she's roughed up looking most of the time, literally beat up, and, and mostly a completely bumbling idiot, just out of her depth, out of her element altogether. And I'm a complete mess. And I wasn't opposed to this gritty attempt at realism, to be honestly, man. I, I actually was hoping it would land better for me because I thought, this is a great idea. Let's tell this story without our spy having superpowers, essentially. But it just, it was flat, flat for me, like as can be. And I too had a really hard time getting through it. And it, it was a solid performance, like you said, unsurprisingly, but the lack of action barring one or two cool scenes like a really neat car chase a very dull and dark color palette for almost the entire film there were no exotic or interesting locations that we were traveling to and going to explore and then it's pretty much a boring mystery in my opinion to be honest that was unpacked and the reveals just sort of happened at the end i I don't feel like they were earned it just was like oh okay now we're done (laughs) I was I felt like I was just kind of sleepily watching my way through this movie and and waiting for it to end. Honestly, I wouldn't say it's bad. It's interesting because, you know, when I think about films that I dislike, I this is one where I, I, I hesitate to say, hey, this is a bad movie. It's just boring. Like it, it, it's not it doesn't make me upset, I guess, is where I'm going with that. I'm not like. I don't have vitriol toward it, like, oh, that really was a terrible thing to watch. No, it's just, I'll forget it, like, in a minute. Hopefully, I'll remember enough to podcast on it, and then it'll probably be gone. So, with that being said, (laughs) I do think that there are a couple of cool themes to explore here, or talk about the way in which they were explored. The first of which, in his reveal meeting with Stephanie... Keith Proctor, who is this reporter who comes to her in the beginning of the film and tells her what has happened, that this plane that has crashed um, and been exploded was 
not an accident that it was a bombing by a terrorist group. Her parents were on this plane and we've, and that's how the film starts with a really weird flash forward that we don't know what it means. And then when you find out what it means, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit odd that it started there, honestly. But in this first kind of reveal meeting, Proctor tells her this, he says, you're another victim. You're just not dead yet. And I feel like maybe this is something that we never really think about, Patrick. This was a line that did resonate with me because you've got a figure. And thankfully, you know, neither one of us to, has lost a close family member in a major tragedy. But you would think that if you lost loved ones in a major tragedy, especially your parents and your sister uh, and and be it in a plane crash, a mass shooting, a weather related tragedy, anything. Do you, do you think that how we see Stephanie, who is a former Oxford student, we're told represented is realistic because is this the way that you imagine someone would react in this scenario? And frankly, what can we learn about having empathy for a person like Stephanie who's going through a period like this where she's completely depressed and a drug addict and just in a spiral because she sort of has this guilt over what happened. I think that it's an entertaining expression of what that could look like. What I thought was very effective after watching it and thinking about this question I started to think about how I reacted to 9-11 and how I reacted to the pandemic, two events that have changed our world. One maybe temporarily, maybe one more long term. I don't know. We don't, we'll see how COVID-19 plays itself out. But I remember thinking, going through those two events, as I, and even going through the pandemic issue right now, how did I respond to that initial news? How do I respond to what the world is adapting to over the course of days and weeks and months. And I remember specifically thinking about 9-11 and there was a day, maybe it was a couple of days after the Twin Towers were hit. I remember sitting in my room in my parents' house as a post-college student, <laughs> which was already kind of depressing, and sitting in the dark with the TV on, with this constant news coverage, and just feeling completely devastated and not knowing why, I began to kind of just evaluate what is it about this making it so depressing. And as I processed through that, I realized that it was something that I couldn't control, something that happened that I couldn't change and go back and fix, and I didn't know how to move forward. And so I think for Stephanie... Her reaction to it, I think, is genuine. Her actions that take place could be genuine. I haven't done those things, but I think that they could happen. And I think for the sake of the storytelling and the entertainment value, I think they add a layer of interest to her. But even Ian says, you're a prostitute and a in a alcoholic or you're a prostitute and a drug dealer, you're a statistic, you're a, you're a cliche. That's not even genuine anymore. And, and I was, I laughed at that line because I was like, yeah, that's what I see. I see that kind of character exist in a lot of movies where you have this down on their luck person who completely kind of self-medicates or self-implodes and then has like a redemptive moment. They want to get better. That's not dishonest, but it is played out a lot. And I think for me, what I saw from her was real, but not necessarily as connectable as I would have liked. Um, I've never lost my entire family, gratefully. I've never experienced something like she has, but I have experienced that devastation and that longing to feel like, how can we just get back to normal? How can I have my life back? I've even felt that as a third party from people around me who feel like their rights have been taken away by not being able to go out and do certain things. I mean, it's all over social media, that kind of opinion. 
And so I think for her, that's where I connect with her is that I see the sense of desperation, the sense of, well, I've lost everything that's dear to me. I've lost any meaning. So I'm just going to give up what I thought was valuable because I realized it wasn't at all. And I think that's what we get when we first get introduced to her. Yeah, I agree. And I would I would equate it to something that most people can relate to or some more people can relate to, thankfully, than losing your entire family in a plane crash would be like the loss of a major romantic type of relationship. So if you've gone through a divorce and we've talked about this in our marriage story episode and others, I've been very open about how devastated I was for very many years. And, you know, some of the actions I took after my first marriage you know, looking back on them now with the eyes that I have uh, in hindsight and blessed to be in a completely different headspace, I didn't make great choices sexually or with regards to my health. Um, and that's essentially what Stephanie's doing. And I think we have to also really keep in mind here, she's alone. I mean, she's alone and she feels guilty. I mean, these, this is a pylon of depression here. It's not just one little aspect. She tells... Boyd later on when she's starting to train with him, she admits, she says, my family weren't even supposed to be on that flight. They changed their plans so that I could join them, but I didn't. And not because I couldn't, but because I didn't want to. And so they flew without me. So her last memories of her family are her choosing not to be on a flight that her family didn't have to be on because she didn't want to be with them. And now she can't be with them forever. So... Once you put yourself in that spot and that go down that depression, I think it does give a realistic impression of what can happen to someone because it doesn't take that long for something like drugs or I would assume prostitution to become a very degrading experience and one that you don't feel like you can get out of and that can just snowball effect into this is who you are. And it feels like that's kind of where she's been living for a while and, and so I, you know, I think we need to remember that and have empathy. I think it's important to think about what a person could be going through when we interact with people in our lives. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of this, you know, focus on those around you in your circle, the people you can touch, right? It's one thing to go on Facebook and be like, R.I.P. Kobe Bryant. You know, it's it's so sad. It is very sad, but I, I don't have a personal relationship with anybody that is deeply affected and knew Kobe Bryant, right? But if you were to lose a family member, I need to be aware of what could be going on inside your head, and I need to make myself available. And I need to, and you know, I think it's important to have people like that in your life. Now, we don't know what happened. We don't know if Stephanie had close friends that she pushed away. There's really no backstory for her. We just get a picture of she was, she had her family, her family's gone and now she's alone. Um, but you know, we could fill in the blanks. She most likely had a robust life and was in such a depression that she fell into this world. And now it's led her here. Yeah. When I look at her character, it feels very untouchable because it feels far removed from what, Maybe you and I know about people, but you make a good point in that everyone has a story and everyone struggles with something. I know very few, if any people who have a constant happy life. And oftentimes something that COVID's teaching me is that we tend to look inward more when times of crisis hit and then we look outward because we want to take care of our own. And then we start seeing that the world around us is being affected by the same thing we are, which again, 9-11, uh, I bring that up because I think both it and COVID are doing similar things. They are reminding us that we're fragile people and that we need each other. COVID especially, you know, being able to not, not being able to physically connect with people reminds me of how much I miss that. Not just miss that, but how much I need that. And hearing the teaching this morning from our local church, I was reminded that the guy on stage, you know, he openly admitted that he struggles with depression. I've discovered that a lot of people do. 
And what it does, you know, including myself, and what it does is it allows me to see the world and see people in that world in a way that doesn't negate their feelings. So when I interact with someone, I take that into account. Not that I think that everybody that I interact with is depressed, but that everyone has a past, everyone has a story, everyone has some kind of struggle or some kind of battle that they're facing. And I don't need to be like stepping on my tiptoes around them, but I at least need to be cognizant of that. It's what's kind of influenced the idea of being aware of white privilege and the ideas around racial discrimination and things like that, that you and I have talked about over the last couple of years. All of that's being influenced by the fact that the people that we interact with, Aaron, have their own stuff. And we tend to kind of compartmentalize what that stuff is based on a few minutes of a conversation. And that's unfair because if I looked at Stephanie, I would think, wow, there's a woman who completely just has no ambition. But without that backstory, without seeing that intimate connection that she has with her family, I wouldn't have much empathy at all. I don't, it's hard for me to have as much as I would like to, but I still have some. And I think that's good storytelling right there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It reminds me of something I was actually learning recently and heard in a book, I think it was, um, regarding race relations and poverty. And someone had brought up the fact that so many people will claim, you know, black folks that are poor just are too lazy to, to work. They don't want to work. They like, they just like being lazy, right? That's, that's a common stereotype that gets thrown around, um, for poor communities. Patrick, nobody wants to be poor. <laughs> no one is poor by choice, right? No one decides, you know what? I just want to live in poverty. I'd like to be homeless. That'd be cool. No, they are there because they feel that there are no way out for them. They feel that they are stuck. They have had whatever choices, whether it's the ones that they've made themselves or the hands that they've been dealt or a combination of that. They've gotten to a place where they've essentially given up and realized it is too much work. It is too hard to get out of this. And I do not feel that I have the support I need in order to help me get out of that. That's where Stephanie is. And of course, the help that Stephanie gets in this situation is a reporter saying, hey, here's the guy who killed your family. Do you want to go get revenge? Because that's what we like to do in our society is get revenge on those who have wronged us. And we'll come back to that. But I wanted to talk about how the movie shows us what it might be like for an average civilian to try and become an assassin, because that is essentially what is happening here. Stephanie goes to meet Reza at a coffee shop. She has this gun. She's going to pull the trigger, but she doesn't do it. Ends up finding out that her contact, the reporter, has been killed in the meantime. And this sets her on a path to meeting Boyd, the former MI6 agent living out in the middle of Scotland somewhere. And ultimately embarking on a quest to become transitioned into a top level assassin of a major terrorist group. Does the film, in your opinion, sell us on this being possible? Possible? Probably not. But entertaining to watch? Absolutely. I think that my favorite parts of the movie were the montage, were that whole training sequence. Shocker. Patrick liked a montage, everybody. Hey, (laughs) unapologetic. I agree with you. The training portion of the film was my favorite. And the reason why is because we got such a harsh reality of what any of us would probably experience if we were hanging out with Jew Law getting assassin training. I love that he just bitch slaps her around. The fact that he just basically says, you're not going to make it. There's this great set of lines that he says when she wants to get this revenge. And he says, look, it's going to be difficult for you. You're going to train harder than you've ever experienced. It's going to hurt more than you think. And at the end of this, as much as you're going to think it's not, it's it, it's not going to be worth it. You're going to feel guilty afterwards. He basically throws in like what every person learns about revenge. Like it really doesn't fulfill you in the first five minutes of this training. And then what we do is we go on and we get what I think is a realistic kind of 
sequence where she's getting a little bit stronger, but she still gets slapped down. She gets a little bit stronger, but she gets slapped down. And at no point do I feel, Aaron, that the student has become the master. I still think she's imperfect. I still think that she's got her flaws. And I think that's what helps her character because that's believable to me. What I love about montage is that the hero overcomes the obstacle. This doesn't necessarily speak to that. Yes, she gets stronger, but in no way does she ever become stronger than him. Now, eventually she says, I'm going to do it my way. And I think that's the turning point. But in that initial sequence, I never saw her ever feeling like she could overpower him. Dude, I so agree with you. We are on the same wavelength as far as the best parts of the film. I actually wrote that line down and it was the one of my favorite lines of the movie for sure. When he says, I can teach you survival, but at the end, it'll still be you. And if you succeed, you'll discover it won't be worth it. And it's awesome because like when he meets her, the first thing he does is he's like, go swimming, get naked and go swimming. And she's like, I can't swim. And he's like, well, I'm done with you then, you know, and, and I loved watching her take those steps. Now, I don't know that I'm endorsing and saying I'm behind her motives and her, her choices of why she's doing what she's doing. But in a sense, she is being forced by someone being encouraged. I should say by someone to take responsibility for herself and the place that she has let her life get to. And she takes these actual steps that, that change her and bring her out of this disturbing funk that she was in. Now, she's got issues that she's still dealing with. This guilt and all of this stuff is still there. She's driven to for these wrong reasons, probably. Um, but it's it's good um, that, that there can be a good that comes out of that. And I love also that amazing section where she's like, I'm as strong as a man. And he just totally shows her otherwise. He's like, let's fight. And I don't think what's important to me about that scene is people who want to twist things for an agenda will come at that and be like, oh, this is very anti-feminine because he's just telling her she's not strong because she's not a man. No, he's proving a very actual factual point. In that her physical strength is not that of a trained male assassin or terrorist strength in all likelihood. And that if she is going to succeed, she is going to need to overcome that in other ways. And it's brilliant. It's a wonderful training piece. It's not about making her feel lesser. It's about helping her recognize and evaluate her strengths and weaknesses so that she can be successful in what she's going to do. So it's actually... It's pro feminine in a sense. It's not anti and, and yet it can come across. I just think it's really well crafted in that way. And when you know, it's coming from a female director, you know that that's her intent as yeah. well. It physically levels the playing field. Like it literally does that when he says, okay, here, I'm going to give you the knife. You do what you know, and I'll show you that you don't know something. And to me, that's great leadership, Aaron is to let someone fail. That's something that I'm learning as a leader and I'm trying to teach some of my team to think for yourself, to be able to feel confident in the choices you make and to learn from the mistakes that you make from those choices if they're not the right choices. That whole sequence in the kitchen where he, there's a there's a point that I really latched onto where he just continuously just pushes her down. He physically pushes her down to show there is a distinct physical imbalance here and you will be around people who are going to be stronger than you. You need to figure out how to counter that. And there's a, there's a great little kind of redirect at the end or kind of a reach back where at the very end, after she's done her thing, she meets up with him and he's got her pinned to a wall and he he makes some comment and she ends up kind of putting a knife like right on his thigh as a way to kind of visibly show, yep, she's learned. And then there's that great set of dialogue where he says, I need you to disappear. And she goes, I don't know who you're talking about or I forget what the actual line was. But it's it's so great to see how that moment in that kitchen kind of echoes later on. And at that point, I feel like the students become the master because 
she has learned how to adapt to who she is, not to become a man, not to become stronger than him or to become equal, but to adapt to her strengths. And that's exactly what he tells her midway through during her training. He says, you've got to use what you have. You can't rely on things that you don't know how to do. You got to be able to do what you're good at. Oh, completely agree. He, he does. And I think, you know, what makes her compelling, even throughout the sort of more boring beginning and and ending of the film in this training section is really the idea of how this is going down. And I loved how uh, Peter DeBrugge of Variety actually wrote something about this. And he said, Stephanie, unlike the female assassin protagonist in Atomic Blonde, Red Sparrow, and La Femme Nikita, displays a realistic near incompetence in the face of danger that makes her relatable in ways very few cinematic assassins have ever been. And that is the heart of why I find her interesting, is because she sucks. She actually reminds me some, and to a he him to a lesser extent, but of the character in American Assassin, who sort of is on a beach with his girlfriend and she gets killed by terrorists and he's recruited and it's like, Hey, you're going to be an assassin now. And you have to work through this. And I, I think her mistakes are what make us understand that she's not becoming ever going to be like a super duper spy. Like she may get better to the, to your point there at the end where she's more aware of her surroundings and able to put that knife on him. But Dude, she fights the man who was responsible for arranging the the bombing, the guy who is in the very first scene of this movie, that she has the gun to the back of his head, and then we flash forward, or flash back, whatever. He is blind, in a wheelchair, and wearing an oxygen mask, and he still nearly kills her. Like, she barely makes it out of there. And I think that that makes her arc credible because she doesn't turn into an action hero overnight and she doesn't even end up killing Riza, right? Like she runs away out of the bus and the bus blows them up. So she, the only one she kills is actually, she doesn't kill him. She tries <laughs> to kill the guy who she gets all sexy for, but she can't even do that when she's in New York, she can't go through with it. Right. And it's, it's that kind of failures that I think make her interesting and and interesting to kind of evaluate as well, because she essentially has had to become someone else. And I wondered if you thought about that at all, how she went from Stephanie, who is normal Stephanie prior to the tragedy, to Stephanie after the tragedy, which is completely awful and, and terribly depressed as a prostitute and a drug addict. And then she has to become Petra, this world-class assassin, and play this role. And so she's sort of trying to get revenge, but she's not even really trying. She's not even getting it as herself. And is there is there something that even makes that worth it? Or, or does that lessen it? There's a messiness that I think is really nice about this, where I thought as I was watching this how much I... I think I would enjoy it more as a TV series as maybe like a six or seven episode, or I mean, maybe a 12 episode series where we get some of that truncated information in flashbacks and flash forwards, but in bigger chunks, like in actual episodes, we get to hang out with her, with her family. And so we get to see the beginning, middle and end of who she is, because I think some of the bigger issues the bigger themes that are going on in this movie that don't necessarily get talked about or get fleshed out are this, are, is this idea of can you really appreciate the act that you're doing like you said if you're not being completely who you are i mean she performs the act as someone completely different at the very beginning when um when he when the journalist meets her he says he says, what's your name? And she gives a name that's not hers. And she says, what do you want to call me? So from the very beginning, she is playing a part. She's basically disconnected herself and 
her name in and of itself becomes a focal point, but not necessarily the thing that's driving her. She's not killing as Stephanie. She's killing as Petra. And I almost wonder if you carried this out even further, if she would like Sydney Bristow from Alias, if she's going to have these tons of identities that after this revenge story, you have these adventures that she goes on as not necessarily Petra, but somebody else and then somebody else. But then she leads this double life as her quote, real person as Stephanie with a husband and kids. And she has her new life there. All these things started coming to my head of like, man, this would be really cool. Is like maybe a, a multi-season series because I think her character is interesting enough because of that dichotomy. I'm this person here, but I'm that person there. And to me, that's a great character that takes on the persona of an assassin or a spy because you have to be somebody else. And her growth into that, I think, is interesting, too. I completely agree with you on the growth aspect of her and how it's hard to envision it being lastingly satisfying if it's not really her that's accomplishing the thing. I do want to point out something about what you're mentioning oh on like a series idea my issue there with the film is that the style the it's just a weird marriage attempt that's being made here with a gritty realistic character who doesn't have the super powers and abilities of a normal typical assassin spy character that we see who can take a ton of punishment or do amazing things that kind of negates the need to go globe trotting and finding all of these cool exotic locations and putting her in those positions to do those things. Well, it gets boring. Like if you're just going to fail over and over and be really ridiculous in the process and not have, you know, look kind of like you're bumbling through it, that's not going to be compelling over and over. And, I, and so it's a really hard thing that they were trying to do. And I see that now you know, it sounds good on paper. And I'm sure that that's probably, it was a good book. I'm sure. I know that it was like a bestseller. That's what this is based on. So it makes sense. But like when you're trying to visualize that on a screen, it's just really hard to buy into seeing that over and over because you're like, you don't buy it. You want to buy it. But if you buy it, then it takes it out of being realistic in the first place. And so it's this really challenging um, mix here that you're trying to have. I wanted to ask one more big question about this movie thematically and that is why are we as a culture fascinated by revenge stories because this movie makes it clear several times that killing a person will change you and that it's not going to be worth it but then it ends with a really cool song that like hypes you up a little bit and a shot of stephanie walking away from boyd as a badass as if she might continue to avenge and and be traveling down this path. Do you think that maybe those final moments are at all in conflict with what the movie wants to say? And And is revenge ever worth it? Like, is that why we are so fascinated? Because we think it would be? I think the rhythm section is intentionally opposite of what we would expect from a revenge story. And I go back to what Boyd says about the fact that early on before he starts to train her, he makes that comment that you're still not going to be complete. And yet at the end, we get that. And I think what makes the rhythm section work, part of what makes it work, is the fact that it's doing the opposite of what we expect from a spy thriller, from an assassin movie. We get a woman who trains but she doesn't become that person at any point in the film save the last three or four frames we get a revenge story where the outcome is not a oh my gosh you're right this didn't feel great we actually got glimpses of yep i now am a better person and i'm gonna go on and do mysterious things in this series that patch is apparently going to create because he wants to see this and so i think what happens is when you watch a movie like this 
it plays on our sense of liking revenge stories, but it does it in a way that kind of gives us our, lets us have our cake and eat it too. Because we know that in a typical revenge story, the character doesn't get that fulfillment, but we get to experience the journey with them. Here, we get a messy journey with an ending that we kind of wanted. We want to be able to, as an audience, feel satisfied knowing that the bad guy's dead, that the main character got what they wanted, and that they don't feel guilty about it. And that plays off of our sense of, as you mentioned, being fascinated with revenge stories, because I think deep in our hearts, Aaron, we all want justice. We all want... And and that plays out in such humorous ways in real life. My wife is so funny because when we were pregnant, we were trying to figure out what to name our child. And if it was a girl, we were going to name her Justice. Because of the Partly because of the fact that my wife gets this kind of endorphin kick every time she sees somebody get pulled over for speeding. Ironically, she's getting excited as she's going 85 down a highway that says 65. <laughs> And I think there's this innate sense of us being able to gravitate towards wanting to see a person go down who did something wrong. And especially when the offense is universally offending, like pedophilia or something like that. So when we see something like Weinstein go to prison for X number of years, you get people that complain about the fact that he's not going long enough or that he should have gotten the death penalty or whatever. What you don't see is somebody coming out saying, well, that's just wrong. He didn't deserve that. You don't see anybody saying that. At least that, not that I've read. There are certain things that I think every human being gravitates toward needing redemption from. Murder is one of those things. When we see somebody's life being taken, most, if not all of us, believe that there is a wrongdoing that's taken place especially if it's done in a way that is brutal, that's done without justification. And for Stephanie, or for any revenge story, but for her specifically, we gravitate towards that. Yeah. Can't really say it any better than that. You hit the nail on the head for everything that I was thinking. You know, I do wonder if there's a bit of a selfishness involved, though, for her character because of the fact that this is not known to the world the world believes that this plane went down as an accident stephanie and her parents and her siblings were but four people or three or four people on this plane a fraction of the lives that were lost so she's getting justice she's going to be able to live with the knowledge that the people responsible for this can't hurt anyone else and have lost their lives as well but what about the other families who will continue to go on living believing that there was this awful tragedy what if there's 30 more people who are alcoholics and depressed suicidal because of the family members that they've lost where's their justice they're not getting anything out of this right they're not able to know that the price was paid for those that were responsible. And so I find that kind of, there's an interesting factor there where, you know, we're watching this as a movie. So we're tuning in on this one person, but in reality, what is this doing for the world? Oh, what is it doing for everyone? Is it, is it about everyone or is it really about you? And I think it's about you. I think it's about her. And I think in many revenge stories it is. And I think that's one of the problems with revenge is it becomes a selfish thing becomes, I need to feel this and it's not as much worried about what it would do for everybody else. So sure. that well, was one and, thing. Yeah, and I was going to say that any revenge story, if you introduce the person being enacted upon as having a connection to family, a wife, kids, now you've just created multiple layers because how is that affecting them? And what you get is a Hatfield-McCoy's mentality where I get revenge because this guy – bombed a plane that killed my family but that guy's married to a woman who has no idea what he does and that woman has two kids and one of those kids finds out that i killed him it doesn't matter what he did 
now that kid's going to go after me and now I have a wife. And it's just it's this spiraling effect that we don't get in this movie because we get Stephanie's story and that's what we're intended to get. But you're right. In the same regard that we want justice as human beings, oftentimes that justice comes from a personal connection. And again, I, I don't mean to keep going back to COVID, but it's the thing that's kind of drowning with us. But until we are connected to someone who has been affected by that physically, emotionally or whatever, by losing a loved one or by getting sick ourselves and seeing the devastation of that, we're not going to feel that empathy. We're going to think one way or the other. We're going to think, oh, maybe this whole quarantine thing is overblown. Or we're going to think, you know what? The government knows what they're doing. Whatever our mentality is, our attitude towards something is really influenced at best by our personal connection to it. And I think that's why revenge stories appeal to us because they let us get into the world of the individual. We don't care about the rest of the people on that plane. Maybe you do, but I think most of the audience that watches this, they're concerned, <laughs> they're concerned about her because this is her story. It's not about the rest of the people on the plane, but you're right. There are echoes. There are rhythms that echo out. Sorry to use that terrible pun, but there's that sense of a, a ripple effect that takes place from every action. And yes, in the real world, what she's doing will probably have an effect somewhere because the people she kills will have an impact, you know? And I think when you look at Sterling K. Brown's character, he was a big man on campus. He had an impact on the world. His loss is going to affect that world that we're seeing in a way that we'll never know because that story is not going to be told. Right. No, I, I absolutely, I mean, I'm not saying it's not enjoyable. It is enjoyable. And that's part of why I think it's interesting that we're fascinated by it, but we're able to tune out and not think about the realistic scenario of all of these other people who actually are being affected by it. And that's what makes this movie challenging because it's supposed to be realistic. It's trying to be realistic in all of these other ways, but where we have to skirt some of these things still. And so it's, it's not quite there i think you know i don't want to go in like a pile session on the movie i do want to mention a couple of really quick things though one is i don't understand why we called this movie the rhythm section terrible terrible i have a film critic friend whose brother worked on this film and had said that there were some conversations about that right and about whether or not the film should be called that and how gritty the film should go and and such, and they were sticking to their guns. And I sort of applaud that in a way that the vision was held to. But I think maybe this was the title of the book. The rhythm section is described at like one point in the movie. And it's Boyd, the, this MI6 agent, and he's teaching her how to shoot. And he says, it's about the heart and breathing and getting them under control so that you can be a better shooter. Heart, think of the heart as the drums and the breathing as the bass. My issue, Patrick, A, the rhythm section does not scream this is a movie about an assassin to me in any way, shape, or form. So marketing-wise, what are you selling here at all? And then secondly, she doesn't kill anybody with a gun. She tries to strangle someone and can't. She runs and stops a bombing and then flees from the bus and guy gets blown up. And then she sticks a knife with venom in Sterling K. Brown's neck. And I guess she attempts to use a gun at first with the guy, uh, the original, the first guy she goes to kill. I don't think she actually kills him with a gun though. Does she? I'm pretty sure she doesn't. Right. And so it's certainly not in a way that an assassin would need to control their breathing because she's fighting with him hand to hand. So why are we titling a movie about how necessary your breathing is? If, that never is going to come into play in your movie. I That bothers me. It, it's like, I know it, it doesn't make or break the movie, but it's like, why? It doesn't, I just don't get it. Uh, that and then the aforementioned, I just, I needed more Sterling K. Brown, man. Mm -hmm. Did not give him much to do here. I felt that his end came really shockingly and really suddenly. And it was like, oh, we're going to get romantic with him for no reason whatsoever. And then we're going to go here and then we're going to come back and kill him because we knew he was the bad guy. And she's just going to tell us that in some exposition. And and then it like, in the and that all happens in like the last seven minutes of the movie. It's just like, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And it's over. And I was like, what is going on here? So those were a couple of reasons also that kind of had me not quite invested. Yeah. 
same here. I, I think Sterling K. Brown was definitely wasted in this movie, <laughs> especially when I look at the cast list and he's not top billing, but he's up there. And then I scroll down the cast listing to see Jude Law's name. I'm like, why is he not near the top of the list here? Because he had a ton of screen time. Yeah, he's like actual like supporting character for like most of the movie where yeah. Sterling K. doesn't come in until the end. Well, uh, it's that time of the episode where we move into our connecting point. Patrick, did you have a connecting point? No, and I'll just no. leave it at that. <laughs> no, well, uh, I didn't either. I don't remember how many times this has happened, but <laughs> it's I rare. Mean, it is rare. But, you know, even thinking back through it, even exploring some of these themes, which I think has been fun and good and inter- interesting, but there isn't a specific moment in the film that deeply moved me in a way that I always am by the connecting points that we choose. I can't remember something that a week from now you ask me what it was and I could tell it back to you. It's just not, it's not there. So yeah, uh, yeah, no connecting point for me either on this one. So I think that that wraps us up. That does. And uh, we will continue our rhythmic review conversation next week with our coverage of Aaron's birthday pick for this year, Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. And I guarantee that conversation is going to be, well, probably 10 times lengthier, as well as more in-depth as this one. And uh, we also have April's donor pick coming at you along with some fun bonus content for our patrons. So look forward to that here before the end of the month. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.